Amen. Let's bow and pray as we come to hear God's Word. Father, we ask for your help this morning. We pray that you would turn our, our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that we would receive your word humbly this morning and joyfully. We ask that you'd work in us by your power, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would change us and transform us and, and shape us this morning as we sit and listen. Lord, we pray you'd remind us of the gift that it is to be adopted into your family by faith in Jesus. We pray we rejoice in that truth this morning. Lord, we, we thank you as a church for the privilege it is to be called your sons, to belong to you. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege to preach your word this morning. I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully and clearly, strengthen my voice to faithfully proclaim your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christian, what is the greatest temptation that you face? Now, we shouldn't be surprised by temptation. The Bible helps us expect it. Chad led us in a prayer of confession this morning because we expect this side of heaven that far too often and regularly we're going to fail to obey God's commands, fail to honor Him and to love Him and to serve Him and to love others. We're tempted in so many different types of ways, so we shouldn't be surprised by temptation, but I, I wonder what you would say is the greatest temptation that you face. shouldn't be too hard to rattle off topics like anger, lust, coveting, growing weary, just despairing, wanting to throw in the towel. I'm sure we could go on and on and on, but what if I told you that, that each one of those specific areas of temptation, it falls into a, a broader category of temptation, a broader category of being tempted to turn back to the slavery of sin. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, he's wanting to warn these churches in the region of Galatia about turning back and giving themselves back over to the slavery of sin. He's wanting them to be on guard, sensitive to sin. And as we look at Galatians chapter 4 this morning, we see this temptation they were facing, this temptation to turn away from their sonship and to turn back to living as slaves. As we consider chapter 4, I think that's our greatest temptation as Christians, to not live out of the sonship that we've so graciously and freely been given in Jesus Christ, and rather to revert back to living as if we were slaves. As we sit and listen to the Apostle Paul's admonition to that group of churches, the original audience, this present audience this morning, may we consider the temptation that we regularly face as Christians, and may we be strengthened to keep on welcoming the gospel. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 8 through 20 this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. If you want to use your pew Bible, turn to page 974, page 974. We're going to make our way through all of this text this morning. Let me read for, for us through Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20.
Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Well, the main idea that I want us to see in this passage in Galatians 4 is is this. Christ forms his people as we keep trusting the gospel. Christ forms his people as we keep trusting the gospel the gospel. In our last study in Galatians, we consider the doctrine of adoption, a glorious doctrine that we all need to meditate on and consider. In the first seven verses of chapter four, we saw the glorious truth that God graciously takes slaves and and makes them into sons. And Paul teaches this doctrine of adoption, not just a separate lesson, but connected to his concern for these churches. So the the letter of Galatians jumps right into this concern we saw in chapter 1. And here is Paul addressing this concern on the heels of doctrinal teaching about adoption. His appeal to them, you're no longer slaves, but sons. So don't turn back to living like a slave. That's his concern. You've gone from slaves to sons. Why are you turning back? He's perplexed here in this passage. Well, as we make our way through verses 8 through 20, two parts of our outline this morning. First, in verses 8 through 11, don't turn back to slavery. And then in verses 12 through 20, keep welcoming the gospel. An exhortation and an encouragement, don't turn back to slavery, keep welcoming the gospel. Let's first look in verses 8 through 11. Don't turn back to slavery. Again, from the very beginning of the letter, we've seen that the Apostle Paul is concerned that this group of churches in south central Turkey, in the region of Galatia, that they're being led away from the gospel. And Paul's trying to pastor them in the means of technology that was available to him in that day, writing a letter and sending it to them. And Paul points out the issue that you were enslaved to sin. By God's grace, you've been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. You know God. 
Rather, you're known by God, adopted into his family. And in verse 9, the problem that he's perplexed by, how can you turn back again to slavery? Now, in the Christian life, we talk about this often, we, we turn away, that's a turn that's good, turning away from sin, away from sin against God. But turning back is something different. It's turning back to sin. It's turning back to enslavement of living in ways that dishonor God. We must be on guard for the temptation that we'll regularly face to turn back again to the slavery of sin. Now, what's interesting with the Galatians is that they're turning back. It looked religious. It looked morally acceptable. It looked respectable. So they weren't turning back to live in sexual immorality. That's certainly a temptation for believers to turn back to living in enslavement to sexual immorality and the passions of the flesh that you've been set free from. They weren't turning back into wild type of living, carousing and drunkenness. Those are all sinful practices that turn back to sin and away from Jesus. But here the Galatians are turning back to trust in their own good works. They're turning back and trusting in their own good works by putting themselves under the Old Testament Mosaic law. The false message that they were buying into was something like this. Well, you can keep Jesus, keep the cross, keep the empty tomb, keep the Lord's Supper, keep the Sunday gathering, but just add your own good works to it. Just, just add the Old Testament law and placing yourself under that. They're being tempted to trust in their own works rather than the finished work of Jesus Christ. His work is sufficient, dying on the cross to pay for every sin. His work in, in rising from the dead is sufficient to bring new life to everyone who would put their faith in Him. And this helps us know that something that may seem religious and respectable on the outside can be deeply displeasing to God and dangerous for your soul. And so Paul exhorts the Galatians by reminding them of their conversion. He's pointed back to remember how you first heard the gospel and received it. And as we look at Paul recounting their story, their testimony, you can see the story and testimony of every Christian, everyone here this morning, who by grace has come to put their faith in Jesus, we have the same story of conversion. Different details, different backgrounds, different situations. We're even going to hear a little bit later in, in baptism, the testimony of our, our sister Tiana Cephas. Uh, her story might be different from yours, but her story is the same, and that God saved her through faith in Jesus Christ. First in verse 8, Paul reminds them of their life before they put their faith in Christ, saying, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. The Galatians were largely Gentiles, so before they were Christians, they were enslaved to false gods, a pagan religion, worshiping idols that indeed were not true, the true God, but false gods, powerless these Galatian Christians were set free from that, set free from that enslavement. And that tells us something about true conversions. True conversion, first Christians are those who've been set free. 
We preach a message about being set free. In verse 8, that description, you were enslaved, describes the spiritual condition of all of us when we were born, from the moment of conception. We commit sins in the plural because of the condition of sin, being enslaved under the bondage of sin. If you've put your faith in Christ, your testimony is that you've been set free. You were enslaved. You didn't set yourself free. God did that. He did that in Christ. It was entirely His work. It was by His power and His love and His grace. Christian, when you repented of your sin against God and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the powerful work that God did in you at that moment of conversion was to set you free from slavery and to adopt you into his family. Prison papers, the prison release papers, and adoption papers given to you at the moment that you first believed. Next in verse 9, another point about conversion. We see a contrast here in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, a Christian is someone who knows God. Only those who know God are truly saved. And I don't mean knowing about God. I don't mean knowing about Jesus. I mean knowing God and who He is in Jesus. This word know, it implies intimacy, an intimate knowledge and relationship. It's often used in the Bible to speak of marital intimacy, this deep relationship that someone has with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Christianity, in other words, is personal. There was a time when you did not know God, when you were far off, and then through faith in Jesus, God drew near. You came to know God. So don't mistake Christianity for a philosophy that you know, or a history and stories that you're familiar with. Don't wrongly understand Christianity as a culture or a tradition that you align yourself with If that's you this morning, if that's what you think it means to be a Christian, you're missing it. There is so much more. Christianity is about a God that you can know, a God that is drawn near to you in Jesus Christ, a God that you can worship and be overwhelmed by His love, a God that you can serve, a God that you find joy and life and hope and peace in because you know Him, because you have a relationship with Him. Maybe you know the rules, maybe you know the rituals, but do you really have a relationship with God and who He is in Jesus? I love hearing our baptism testimonies every Sunday, young and old, or every Sunday that we have them. I'd love to have them every Sunday. Let's pray for that. But I love hearing those testimonies because it's all about, and a lot of times you'll hear somebody say, well, I thought I knew God because I knew about him. But then I realized there was a moment I didn't really know him, meaning I didn't really have a relationship with him. I knew the rules. I knew the rituals. I didn't have a relationship. Being a Christian is about knowing God. But Paul clarifies in verse 9 how all of that comes about. They know God because they have come to be known by God. In other words, knowing God cannot be attributed to the work of the Christian. Christian, before you knew God, God knew you. A doctrine brings comfort, doctrine of election. 
of God's grace. Before you knew God, Christian, God knew you first. He chose you before all of creation. He took the initiative to save you, to redeem you. You didn't set yourself free. You couldn't. You were dead in your sins. You were made alive by God and Jesus Christ. You see, being known by God speaks to God's grace. Christianity is a religion of grace. It's not a religion of, of earning, of your effort, somehow this exchange that God's going to take your effort because you have the, the best of intentions and He's going to somehow reward that. No, we're a religion of grace. You won't hear a message like this anywhere else in the world besides a Christian church. And we proclaim it every Sunday morning. It's only by God's grace, not because of our merit, but by His mercy that we've been forgiven of our sin. Our testimony is we've been set free. Our testimony is not look at us and amazing me, but look at God's amazing grace and what He's done to save me. Another apostle, the apostle John, put it like this in 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Follow the logic here. The Galatians came to know God. They were adopted into His family, not based on their own merits, but based on God knowing them and choosing them. And that's what the Apostle Paul is highlighting. You started like this, keep going in the same way. But you know, one of the most important questions you can ask if you're here this morning does God know you? Not do you know about God. I trust you do. You live in America. Of course you know about God. I mean, you're here this morning. Of course you know about Jesus. We're big on Christmas and Easter in this country. At least Santa Claus and Easter Bunny. Not do you know about God. Not do you know about Jesus. Does He know you? That's an entirely different question. It asks, are you in a relationship with God? Does He recognize you as one of His own? Do you belong to His family? See, that only comes by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul wanted the Galatians to be reminded of this. You've been saved by God's grace. That's the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. That same gospel that saved you is the gospel that you continue on in. Keep on trusting the gospel. There is no greater gift than being known by God. There's no greater blessing than being known by God and who He is in Jesus Christ. There's no greater life than being united, a life of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the truth that the Apostle Paul is pastoring them in here. He's telling them you're, trusting back, you're turning back to trust in your own works. And that's not how you became a Christian. Your conversion was not due to your own obedience. It was a transformation by the grace of God. It's a transformation by which you were set free from sin and you came to know God. If all this happened in your life, his logic here, if you've been redeemed, set free from the slavery of sin, welcomed and adopted as God's sons, how can you turn back? You've been adopted. Don't go back to the orphanage. Live with God. Live your life united to Him through Jesus Christ. That's why He asks at the end of verse 9, how can you turn back? Verse 9, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. 
Now, we saw this phrase back in chapter 4, verse 3, elementary principles of the world. And most simply what this means, I think, is the basic elements and rituals of human religion. Certainly, the Gentiles had a pagan religion, a background of worshiping idols. But but keep in mind, these Galatians weren't returning to pagan religion here. That wasn't their temptation. They were being tempted to put themselves under the Old Testament law. That's what these false teachers, the Judaizers, were telling them they needed to do if they truly wanted to be counted as God's people. What's interesting here, Paul compares them turning back to the works of the Mosaic law to returning to their former pagan religion. In other words, he's saying both of those are man-made. Both of those are not God's commands. God didn't command Christians to revert back to the law. He had a purpose for the Old Testament law. It was successful in that it was fulfilled by Jesus. The law was a shadow that pointed to Him. So trying to earn your salvation through keeping the Old Testament law is just as enslaving as pagan religion and practices. It may seem nice and moral and acceptable and very devout of you to live like that, but the Apostle Paul is saying it's actually displeasing deeply to God. You've graduated to the gospel, adopted into God's family. Why would you turn back to living like a slave? In verse 10, we see some detail to how they were turning back to live like slaves. You observe days and months and seasons and years. They traded one false system of worship as Gentiles to another false system of of worship, trying to trust in their good works and not in faith in Jesus, trying to add to their faith in Jesus through their own law-keeping. And all of that causes Paul to say in verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's expressing concern here. Maybe they're not truly Christians. You can't lose your salvation. But there are often, and we see in the Scriptures, those who profess to have faith in Jesus, who don't actually possess faith in Jesus. Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable about the different types of soil, and only one truly possesses faith and bears fruit. Paul's expressing concern. Maybe they're not truly Christians. Maybe they were never truly converted. He was starting to wonder if they were walking in faith by Jesus or if they were walking by faith in themselves and in their own self-righteousness. These measurements of time in verse 10, they refer to observing the Old Testament calendar. That was one aspect of obeying the Old Testament law. These days and months and years, all laws, ceremonies. Days most likely refers to the Jewish Sabbath, the weekly observance of the Jewish Sabbath. Months to new moon rituals. Seasons to feasts like Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. Years to things like the year of Jubilee or a sabbatical year. It seems that these false teachers, the Judaizers, had persuaded these Gentile believers to keep the Jewish calendar. What was up next for them was they needed to get circumcised, but they'd already persuaded them to keep the Jewish calendar, to observe these special times, thinking that they would obtain merit before God. But God had already made it clear that works could not be added to faith in Jesus as a grounds for their salvation. Faith alone, in Christ alone, is how one is saved by the grace of God alone. So for them, this was adding something to Jesus. 
Jesus plus keeping the Old Testament calendar. There was nothing spiritual about this. It was a spare ritual. Something they were doing to try to earn and keep God's favor. Now, certainly Jewish believers, we'll see in the New Testament, were free to continue to observe the Sabbath. You can read more about that in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. Certainly they were free to keep Passover and the other festivals as those who realized that all of those things had already been fulfilled in Jesus, but none of that was an obligation for Christians. None of that had anything to do with someone being accepted by God. In fact, requiring Christians to celebrate those feasts as a means of their justification was adding to the gospel. It helps us know, Christian, that we're no longer under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament. We're under the New Testament, the the New Covenant. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And as Christians, we look back and recognize all of those seasons All of those days, the Sabbath, the Passover, all of that, they were shadows of what has already come, Jesus. They all pointed forward to Him. The Passover, what was it about? The blood of the Passover lamb spread over the doorposts of your house. God's spirit of wrath and judgment passing over you only if the blood of the lamb covered the doorpost of your house. Look forward to Jesus, Christ Our Passover lamb was what Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians. The lamb of God. The one who shed his blood. And if his blood covers over your heart, God's judgment and wrath passes over you. You've been set free from slavery and sin. Free to live as God's child. His blood, the blood of the lamb, sets you free. The Sabbath, what did it look forward to? Rest. What did Jesus say? Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Not physical rest. Rest for your soul. The Sabbath looked forward to the day when rest would not be found in a day, but in a person, in Jesus. This day, this Lord's day that we gather as Christian, reminds us of the rest we find in Jesus. We rehearse the gospel in this gathering. Reminded that we found rest for our souls, rest where we no longer have to strive and try to somehow earn our way to God. We found rest by being forgiven of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll consider how this often looks today, in America, today. There are those who don't truly know God. They know about God. They know about Jesus. They keep a calendar Christmas and Easter, two kind of holy days. They try to do enough good to somehow outdo the bad they feel like they've done and hope that God will accept them if they do enough good things to cancel out the bad things. And a large percentage of our country lives like that and calls themselves Christian. That is not the Christian life. That's not the gospel. That's not true conversion. True conversion is found in someone who knows God, who's in a relationship with God, who's repented of their sin, sought forgiveness of their sin through faith in Jesus Christ. The problem here with the Galatians, they were reverting to self-righteousness, trying to justify themselves by keeping the Old Testament law. And as such, the warning from Paul is that they will become slaves to something weak, 
and worthless. Christian, for us, the warning here is this. What you subject yourself to be justified by, in a sense, you become a slave to that. They were trying to be justified by their good works, and therefore, their religion was going to become about their good works. That's what went wrong in Judaism. And that day, it was no longer about God. It was about the law. No longer about God and His grace. It was about their own keeping of ritual and rules to justify themselves, and therefore they were no better off than the pagans. They were just as far from God, but deceived and somehow thinking they were close to God. The good news for Christians, by God's grace, we've been subjected to Jesus Christ, and therefore our identity is slaves or servants to Jesus. There is no better master. There is no better Lord. There is no better one to give yourself to, to be ruled by, to submit to the authority of, to be known by, to be loved by, to be provided for and cared for than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christian, be reminded this morning, we rely on Jesus Christ alone. We find rest in Jesus. Don't turn back to slavery. By all means, be zealous for good works. Let's pray for those. Those are important. We see that in the book of Titus. Be zealous for good works, but don't seek acceptance before God based on that. That simple reminder we've had in Galatians, the gospel, it means good news. You don't do the good news. You don't do the Wall Street Journal. You read it. You don't do Charlotte Axios. You look at the website. You hear about the top restaurants in town. You tell others about those top restaurants. You don't do the gospel. You hear it. You believe it. You trust the gospel. You rejoice in the gospel. Good works are important, but distinguish them from the gospel. In the gospel, we find rest and hope and life and righteousness from God and forgiveness of sins. In the gospel, we found salvation and we will find sanctification. And one day, we will be home in glory. And it's all by the power of the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't turn back to slavery. Rest in Jesus. The second part of our outline, verses 12 through 20, keep welcoming the gospel. Keep welcoming the gospel. Paul's perplexed by these Galatian churches. His thought in this section is something like, what happened? What is going on? From verse 15, we can see he's wondering, what happened to you? He asked there, what then has become of your blessedness? Down in verse 20, he states he's perplexed about them. At his wits end, what happened? He planted these churches. He'd left. Quickly, these false teachers, the Judaizers, came in, started preaching a different gospel, which Paul has been clear, there is no other gospel. They were on the verge of apostasy meaning abandoning Christ, but they're not there yet. Notice in verse 12, Paul calls them brothers. So they've not yet committed full-on apostasy, but they're in danger of turning away. Here in verse 12, we find the first command in Galatians. Lest you think the Bible is just a bunch of commands. They're there, but we had to go through four and a half chapters to find the first command in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, of course, he's expressing concern to them about what's going on, what happened with you. But most of what he's been doing so far is just teaching about what God has already done in Jesus Christ. 
Christianity is about good news. Those commands come as a response to us trusting the good news of Jesus. The first command there in verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. That's the command, become as I am. It's a command to imitate him. What does he mean here? I think what he means is he's free from the Mosaic law, and they need to live like him. He's not trusting in his law-keeping of the Old Testament. He's trusting in Jesus Christ. He already stated back in chapter 2, verse 20, how he presently lives, and they need to become like him. He said, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He's saying, become like me in those types of things. He once lived enslaved to the law. Christ set him free from that enslavement. He wants them to become like him. Now, again, as a Jewish believer, he had the freedom to keep the Sabbath, to keep the law, but as, uh, and those rituals and things like that. But as Paul ministered as an apostle to the Gentiles, he gave up observance of the Old Testament law. He became as they are as Gentiles, that he might make the gospel clear. They didn't need to trust in Jesus plus keep the Old Testament law. They needed to repent and believe in Jesus. They needed to follow his example. Well, think about this. That may sound kind of arrogant. Maybe you think, oh, that's that's arrogant. Should others follow my example? Yes. If you've been saved by God's grace, there's evidence of grace in your life. And in that sense, we're all an example to one another. If you're new in the faith, oftentimes you're an example to us who've been Christians for a long time of that passion and that zeal, uh, kind of that unashamed desire to tell everyone you know about Jesus. What an example. I love that. The young are an example to the old. The old are certainly an example to the young of what perseverance and suffering and trial and Perseverance to persevere in joy. That's why we have a local church full of young and old and lots of different people. I love that about our church, the examples that exist here. Consider the power of examples in churches. Now, certainly elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, are to be examples to the flock. That's, that's a part of being an elder is having a beneficial example for others to follow. But also members of the church broadly are to be examples to one another. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus calls those who follow him in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, he's been an example, and give, your, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, brother and sister, consider the example you're setting for others. All of us have good examples we're setting and bad. We need to think about the importance of an example. And a good question to ask yourself If more people followed your example in this church, what would our church look like? It's a convicting question to ask. It is. Desire for God's Word, faithfulness to share the gospel, generosity, giving of yourself to other members. If more people followed your example, what would our church look like? Brothers and sisters, every Sunday is a morning to be strengthened in the great example we have in Jesus and to look to Him, to look to be strengthened in our faith. And every Sunday is a Sunday to look around. There's lots of good examples here in this church. I've often said, and I won't say it right now because I don't want to embarrass you, but I've often said, I want to be like so-and-so when I grow up. 
because I see brothers and sisters here this morning faithfully, joyfully serving God. I'm one of your pastors. I know what you're going through. I know the burdens. You've shared the burdens that you bear with us, and I see you. I see you here, and I want to be like you one day. I want to be one who perseveres in suffering and in trial. Let's be those who continue to set a godly example and consider the importance of that in our ministry to one another. Paul was pleading with them to hold on to the gospel. Keep trusting the gospel. From the end of verse 12 to verse 16, Paul recounts their initial reception. You welcomed the gospel at first. Keep welcoming the gospel. What happened? Keep welcoming the gospel. Let me read from the end of verse 12 to verse 16. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ammo that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul had some sort of bodily ailment. We don't get all the details of, of what it was. I, I've heard reading these letters kind of compared to when someone's around. You know how people sometimes, it's kind of rude, but people do it. Maybe you do it. Talk on the phone in public, and you're hearing one part of the conversation. Maybe you're eavesdropping in, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. You hear one part of the conversation. It's kind of like what happens in a letter. We're, we're hearing one side. They were clear on whatever issue, whatever bodily ailment the Galatians were, but we're reading a letter thousands of years later. We're not exactly clear on the details here. Whatever it was, this bodily ailment may have prevented him from going somewhere else, and he may have diverted his path there to the region of Galatia, which helps us know that God uses even our physical trials and ailment for his good. He has a plan there. He doesn't cease to use people if they're struggling physically. Paul's physical ailment worked out for the good of the Galatians and for the glory of God and the gospel there amongst those churches. Now, some scholars speculate the ailment could have been malaria. Others suggest it could be some sort of deformity. Maybe it was something with his eyes. I mean, after all, they, he makes a hyperbolic point later that they would have gouged out their eyes and given them to him. They loved him so much. We don't know what it was, whatever that situation was. The point being made is that even though Paul had a physical ailment, they received the gospel. Their Gentile culture valued strength and weakness. It would have been a liability to come as a weak messenger with some sort of physical bodily ailment saying, I've got a divine message, but you are clearly a weak messenger. Their reception of the gospel and welcoming the gospel was an evidence of God's grace that he truly worked in their lives. They needed to keep on in the way that they started. He says in verse 14, you receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus, meaning they welcomed Paul because they welcomed Christ. They received the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with joy. They needed to keep welcoming the gospel. Now, through the influence of these false teachers, the, the Judaizers, they were giving themselves to a different message, a different gospel, which Paul has said there is no other gospel. That's why he's perplexed in verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? They were now turning away from the gospel. In verse 16, they were treating him as if he were an enemy because he was telling them the truth. They needed to be discerning. In verse 17, Paul calls for them, consider the character of these false teachers. 
And he refers to the Judaizers simply as they. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, they tickle your ears. They say a lot of things in your presence to make much of you, probably because they want your money. They want you to be committed to them, and they want to shut them out from Paul, ultimately from the gospel. Consider their character and contrast that with Paul's motivation. His motivation, he says, you're far different. He makes much of them for good purpose. And he uses this illustration here that, that points to the heart of a mother for her children. In verses 18 through 20, he describes his pastoral concern as a mother in labor. That may sound odd if you've ever been in labor before. Why is Paul, what does he know about being a mom in labor? Well, he at least knew it was painful. There was agony there. Right? You don't have to have gone through labor to understand there's a devotion and a love that you go through all of that pain and agony to hold your child. The labor pains of delivery, God willing, those end in holding your child. Verses 18 to 20, he describes his pastoral concern like this. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, he uses this metaphor of childbirth, comparing it to a woman being in labor for a second time with the same child. So coming into the first time, there was suffering in preaching the gospel. He's saying, now I'm coming back to try to rescue you, and I'm willing to go through all that pain and suffering again because I love you. Like a mother who suffers and endures the pain of childbirth, who was feeling anguish, it pained him to see these churches, his children, being led astray from the gospel. Yet like a mother, he loved them and willingly went through that pain to secure their delivery and safety once again. In contrast to the Judaizers, his motivation as an apostle was one of a good purpose in Christ. Here's what he says his purpose is for Christ to be formed in you. Verse 19, his desire, his aim stated there for Christ to be formed in you. He longs to find them shaped and formed by the power of Christ in them. And that's the goal of Christian discipleship. Simply put, what it means is to grow in Christ-likeness. For Christ to be formed in you, to grow in Christ-likeness. That happens from the inside out. The indwelling presence of, of Christ in you. Living like Jesus, loving God, loving neighbor. That's what fulfills the whole law. Jesus inside of you causing you to live like that, shaping you and forming you. They were wrongly, the Galatians, trying by their outward actions of keeping the law to shape and form themselves. But the law is not a savior. Christ is. Christ is the one who forms his people. And the promise that we all have, we put our faith in Jesus, the presence of Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. The goal and the aim of Christian discipleship, spiritual formation, growth in Christ-likeness. This is a process, believer. It takes place over a long time, from the moment you were converted to the moment we're in glory, whether Jesus returns first or whether you go to be with Him. This is a process of spiritual formation and growth that requires patience 
and perseverance supplied by God's Holy Spirit. And here we see that Christ is formed in us as we keep welcoming the gospel. Growing in your walk as a Christian is not easy. It's hard. Whoever told you it'd be easy was not telling you the truth. They might have been lying to you. They just didn't give you the full picture. It's hard. It is hard to fight sin. It is discouraging when we give in to sin. How many times have you sinned since you've been in this room? If you're honest, all of us have. Probably compared ourselves to somebody already. That's frustrating. Especially when you've been doing it for decades and decades. And you thought, maybe when you were a young believer, hey, give me 10 years and I'll be done with this. And you might be more discouraged by your sin now than you ever have been. Being a Christian is hard. It's not easy. But brother and sister, it's not complex. Our confidence is in Christ in us. He strengthens us and He empowers us. And I want to tell you one of the most basic ways to grow as a Christian. You should be encouraged. You're doing it right now. To be in church. Well, Dave, of course you say that you're a pastor. I'm glad you're here. I really am. I'm glad you're here. But if I wasn't a pastor, I hope I would be here too. My dad was not a pastor, and he's in church right now. He's been a member of the same church, my mom and dad, for 30 years right down there. That's where they are right now, and that's how they raised me, according to God's Word. Hebrews chapter 10, let us not forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. Gathering together, we encourage one another. One of the primary hindrances for the Galatians was false teaching. False teaching, it can shut you down, but there's a solution. Give yourself to good teaching, true teaching, a place where you can hear the gospel preached. We are, we're in a transient city. Many of you may move away from here at some point. The, the commitment we make when we join this church is to join another gospel preaching church. And where you need to go whenever you leave here is to another gospel preaching church. Don't look for the perfect church. You won't find it. If you do and you join it, you'll mess it up. Join a faithful church. Join a faithful church. A church of Christians that trust God's word and want to hear God's word. It's great to have big name preachers. I've been influenced by them. I've sat under the ministry of a big name preacher. Most of my life, I've under the ministry of men you'll never hear of who just faithfully preach God's word. That's what you need is a faithful pastor wherever you go. It's, it's that simple. Start with a local church where you can faithfully hear the gospel preached every Sunday morning, where you can welcome the gospel because it's preached, and then extend that devotion to Christ throughout your week. Keep welcoming the gospel. I love how, much, how often members of this church study the Bible together. If you're a man and you want to study the Bible this Wednesday at 7 a.m., show up at the fellowship hall. We'll be studying the gospel of John, welcoming the gospel together. Tuesday night, Friday morning here at the church, a group of women study the Bible and welcome the gospel as they're going through the book of Proverbs. Lots of people doing these types of studies in their houses. Get together with a member of the church, have coffee, invite them to over to your house for a meal. Talk about the gospel. That's how we welcome the gospel in our lives. That's how we get encouraged. That's how we encourage others. How do we fail to keep welcoming the gospel? Stop coming to worship. Be spotty in your attendance. Leave as soon as this service is over. Don't develop any meaningful relationships here. Don't take any initiative to get to know other people or put yourself around the lives of other believers. And friends, that's going to have an impact on you spiritually. Open up your life to others who love Jesus and who will love you. Keep welcoming the gospel. And so I leave you with this question. Where do you need to welcome the gospel more in your life this week? How might you do that?
brother and sister, may our confidence be in Christ. He forms His people as we keep trusting the gospel. Nothing needs to be added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To add to the gospel is to change it and to lose it. So you know what's left? Keep trusting the gospel. Keep believing. Keep rejoicing. Keep resting. Keep trusting in our risen Savior who is with you always. Christian, you have been saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You never graduate from that. Keep trusting. Keep rejoicing. Keep asking God for the help to do that. And let's do that now. God, we ask for your help by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would keep trusting, keep rejoicing, keep resting in the truth. Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider the, the means of grace that you've already provided for us. We thank you for how you've provided that for us this morning in this time of worship. And may we be those who keep welcoming the gospel. Draw near to us, Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.